Josh Summers, and it's an honor to have you here today. This podcast attempts to explore a full spectrum spirituality, looking at the light and shadow aspects of being, how they can integrate together to promote a thriving life, and as, a, as the podcast is titled, and an apprehension, how, the, how these things can help apprehend the sublime, the, the ineffable, the transcendent, the mystical that saturates everyday life. In today's episode, I share a Dharma talk or a Dharma reflection that I uh, give on Monday nights as part of the online offerings that Terry and I share each week in our online Sangha. Uh, And uh, before I give you the talk, I just want to say that I want to give a a warm and and grateful wholehearted shout out to all the members of this online Sangha because it's their membership that really give the financial support for this podcast. So thank you for your participation in the Sangha if you're a member. And if you're new, uh, one of the things I'd like to say is welcome. Uh, Welcome to the show here. Um, But if you're new and uh, you're not really sure yet, please just enjoy this content without any sense of guilt whatsoever. Um, This is a free podcast, so the, the, the material support from the Sangha members really helps make it possible. But I do want this material to be freely available to anyone that has has any sort of interest in these themes. Um, But if you're new and over time you find that you enjoy these conversations and reflections that I share and you would like, and this is the key point, if you would like to really dig dig deeper into your own spiritual practice and path and you would like online support and a sense of community in doing that, then please do think about checking out our Sangha. One of the practices that we're starting to explore in the Sangha right now is the practice of writing. That is both in the in the process of journaling and in the process of letter writing. And on the latter front, in terms of letter writing, one of the things we're doing is uh, launching a program called the Kalyana Mitra Project. Kalyana Mitra in Pali, the, the language of Buddhism, or early Buddhism, I should say, uh, Kalyana Mitra refers to a spiritual friend. Uh, often it's a term used for the teacher. So the teacher in, in early Buddhism is not referred to as a guru referred to as a spiritual friend, that is someone who has walked the path and supports you in your ability to walk the path. Um, But the idea here is that this is really going to be more of a peer-to-peer process where members of the the Sangha will be paired with each other to engage in an exercise or a a more process of letter writing to each other where they write about uh, their life and how they see the Dharma in their life unfolding. Um, I do this with a few friends myself, and I find the exercise enormously rewarding and enriching for the, that's the quality of my life and uh, my understanding of the practice through the, exploring this with another mind. And right now, we're in the process of launching this project. Um, now, it's open enrollment, so if months from now you decide to join and uh, you're interested in this, you'll still have that option. But... As we pair people, as we speak right now, I'm just kind of overwhelmed by um, realizing where many of you in the Sangha are coming from. Um, this is one of the, the real beautiful things of online life in that we're able to connect dis- disparate parts of the world um, in an almost effortless sort of way. And we have students coming in from obviously where I am, which is North America, United States, and Canada. We also have students in Europe, 
in uh, Ireland and the UK and Switzerland and Germany and Spain and Austria. And further afield, uh, to me, again, if you're there, it's not further afield to you, but we have folks uh, coming in, um, attending from Indonesia and Malaysia and elsewhere. So this is a really exciting development for us, and uh, we're, we're looking forward to it. So again, um, if you're interested, and particularly if you would like to help support the, um, the work we're doing, especially on the podcast, please consider membership. Of course, if membership is not your cup of tea, and I know it might not be for many, but you're still interested in some of the themes that we explore, Terry and I have put together four um, sort of mini 10-hour courses on the fundamentals of yin yoga, the fundamentals of meditation, the fundamentals of Chinese medicine or energy work, and the fundamentals of yang yoga. And those are available on my site, um, either uh, as a bundle or available individually. And the proceeds from those sales also help support the podcast. So those are just some of the ways that you can support the podcast. And if you're interested in either of them, links are available for you there to check out more in the show notes of this episode. Now, today, I will now give you the talk from last week called A Tale of Two Selves. In preparation for this talk, I, I was thinking, do I, do I draw from the themes of the hindrances that we've been exploring, or do I pick up on some of the questions and 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 um, kind of ideas that are coming up in the in the in the discussion session after our talks after the talk and our, our meditation together, and um, particularly after last week's uh, Q and A session, um, there's a few few shares and and themes that came up in those shares that I, I really was was very intrigued by um, and um, kind of I felt were very they were very compelling themes that I kind of I want to take a little more time to unpack and explore. So one of the themes that came up last week at the end was really this relationship between what we're doing in our quote unquote meditation practice and what we do, what, whatever we're doing, what does that have to do with what we come to realize in the course of practicing? So what is the relationship between our the activities that we what we do in meditation and what, what do we come to realize? What's the, what's the relationship between those? And one way of describing that relationship um, is what I'll be referring to this talk as a tale of two selves with full recognition of of, uh, the tale of two cities by Dickens. Um, So a tale of two selves where I'll be trying to speak to some universal themes that I I hope you'll be able to relate to and connect with and and see in your own experience of life. But the first part of this, this tale is the tale of the small s self, the little s self. And that self is sometimes referred to as, you know, the self of the personality, the me in the middle of my story. So it's the history we have. It's a sense of our future. It's a sense of our past. It includes all the facets and likes and dislikes and fears and anxieties and desires of the personality. It will include our family, our relationships, our political ideologies. All of that is related to the small S self, the little self. And sometimes in, in, in various spiritual literatures, the um, one way of describing the little S self is to suggest that the experience of the little S self 
exists on what is referred to as a horizontal axis. So I want you to imagine, if you can, that if you look at a blank piece of paper, you draw a straight line across the middle, a horizontal axis is running east to west with two arrows at each end. One arrow pointing to the right is pointing off to the future. One arrow pointing to the left is pointing to the past. And in the middle is the location of the small s self. And it experiences its world through referring or through, um, yeah, through reference of the past and future. And one way of um, connecting the, the theme of horizontal selfness in terms of referencing the future and past to what we've been exploring previously in the hindrances is that you could say the experience of the hindrances themselves, they operate, the hindrances themselves operate at the level of this horizontal axis. So, you know, if you're just joining the hindrances, these difficult energies of mind that arise uh, both in life and in meditation, these difficult energies of desire, aversion, worry, and restlessness, uh, lethargy or apathy and doubt, those energies are always in reference to a memory from the past and a projection into the future. So you can just take, say, a, a simple desire for, uh, I always use the example of a cup of coffee, but say you have a desire of a cup of, cup of coffee that is embedded in a past history of having pleasant experiences with a cup of coffee, and then the fear of what would happen if you don't have the cup of coffee, what would that would lead to in the future? And for me, that would be a, a splitting headache. So the, the desire for this thing um, is, is, is functioning in relationship to both past and future. Um, and you know, it, I'll let you go through this exercise on your own if you're interested, but to, and I, I challenge you to do it. Take all of the hindrances that we've been looking at so far, which is just desire, aversion, and, and sort of anxiety and restlessness. Look at those and see how they, they, they are always simultaneously pointing to experiences from the past that we either want to recreate or avoid or uh, projected, anticipated uh, occurrences in the future that we also either want to have or avoid. So th these energies that we've been talking about are very much... Uh, the the difficult aspect of this horizontal axis. And I would go so far, I'm going to make a very bold statement here, and, and, and I'm not even sure if this is 100% true, so don't take it as, as gospel. <laughs> but um, the bold statement I want to make is that if our identity, if our sense of self, if our identity is limited or defined by this horizontal axis axis alone, that's the only touch point for our sense of self, this, this horizontal axis, the inevitable result is some combination of anxiety, depression, addiction, ill will. These are the pathologies of self that are intrinsic to this level. They're not, a, they're not something gone wrong with that level. It's just that's what happens when our sense of self is limited to that level of existence. Now, if this small s sense of self is lucky, it will get, at some point, it will get pretty fed up with the misery that attends this horizontal axis of being. And the small self will try to get spiritual, turn to spirituality for an answer. And this is where I want to share a little bit of my own personal story. Now, I, I, I want to be clear here that 
details or artifacts of my own life are shared only in the service, hopefully, of uh, sort of enabling you or helping you uh, locate these same similar experiences in your own life. In other words, where are these experiences that I'm going to be referring to touching on kind of universal themes? And if I were to, if I would, I've been spending a, few, a little bit of time this week reviewing my quote-unquote spiritual biography, and if I were to locate the the, the inception of my spiritual interests, I, I went way back to early family vacations spent in Maine, where I now live. I grew up in Massachusetts, but my my parents would either um, rent a, uh, a small sailboat that we would sail along the Maine coast on that seemed all the beautiful harbors. Or sometimes we go camping in Nova Scotia or Maine um, in, in the national parks. And as most families are, my family wasn't particularly harmonious. <laughs> there was a lot of strife and conflict and tension and, and fighting. And on and they seemed to be exacerbated on these holidays. So whenever I could, from a very early age, I would escape. I would try to escape. I'd go hide out behind a boulder and stare at a placid lake for a while, or I'd get in a little rowboat and go row off to some distant corner of the, of the, of the harbor and just be with myself. And this is all, like, I was all happening before I could really be conscious of what I was doing. But I will say that at the, in those experiences, I had a very deep, profound sense of awe for nature. For the the uh, for the beauty for the the um, for really the the ineffable quality of the beauty of nature something that words can't really quite, quite contain. Now, as I matured and as I got became an adult, I realized what I was experiencing was in the traditions are referred to as a form of nature mysticism, a sense of oneness and awe and 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 ineffable beauty with with the natural world. And for a long time, I tried to reproduce that. And I grew up in, in a town south of Boston that was um, my, my, my mother's property was um, bordering the Audubon Society in my town. And so I would go to the Audubon field a lot and stare at the local river and try to recreate this experience of, of, of kind of spiritual unity. Um, in other words, my, my access to spirituality was, in a sense, dependent on being in a natural environment. Um, but as I got older and as I got into high school, um, I was very uh, involved in the music department. I played saxophone and clarinet. And um, I know some of you are musicians, so this won't come as a surprise, but in, in the school that I was at, you know, musicians were the band geeks. And uh, there was a lot of kind of uh, sectarian culture war between musicians and athletes and the drama club and this and that. So musicians kind of banded together, literally, pun intended. And I would hang out most of my free time in the band room. Uh, this big, large square room that had um, two, four or five foot speakers connected to a stereo. And um, at, in the off periods of, of, of music time, meaning when, when there was no class going on, the band, it's, the band room itself was available to anybody that wanted to practice or to play along with some music on the, on the, on the record. We had records back then. And um, one day, and this was an ordinary day, I uh, put on a compact disc of David Sanborn. And a few of my friends were sitting on the side. I said, I'm going to play this song. Tell me what you guys think. And I don't even know what the name of the song was. Uh, but David Sanborn is sort of this, um, where it was a very popular saxophonist back then. And I started playing along with David. And the most extraordinary thing occurred. Josh 
went up in smoke <laughs> or Josh went up in light. There was absolutely, it's very, it's, it, was, it was one of the most profound experiences of my life. And it was definitely a turning point um, because it was the first time in my life where I was playing music without any sense of doing a thing. I was not doing, I was not blowing. I was not moving my fingers. I was just sort of lifted up into this rapturous experience of being, of sound just blowing through me. And when it ended, uh, my my friend or two on the side says, what the hell was that? What happened for you there? You were, where were you? That was the most amazing thing we've ever heard you play. And I said, I don't know what, what, you know, it was, it, it totally blew my mind. Now, as I, again, became more of an adult, I realized what I experienced there was a, it was a very profound state of flow. What the, the, uh, the psychologist, Mihai Chick sent Mihai, I think is his name, uh, refers to as flow, where a sense of self-reference falls away and you're lifted into a kind of timeless dimension of being. And this was amazing to me because now it was similar. It was a similar experience to the nature mysticism, but now it was connected to something that I could actually hold in my hand or my hands. I could hold this this conduit to the potential of this transcendence. And I was hooked. So I I tried to uh, really pursue music for a while until unfortunately my, my, um, my inability to, or my, my poor musical ear hobbled my, 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 um, my progression in the musical world. I, I, I tried to attend Berklee College of Music but it, for, for a year, but it just became too problematic having a bad musical ear trying to play jazz. So my access to the spiritual, my access to the transcendent was a way kind of stripped away from me. And I became quite depressed. And that depression... And grew even more when I got into college. Now, while I'm depressed in college, um, and I was in New York City in the Upper West Side of Columbia, um, I would walk back to my apartment. And and as I come back to my apartment on Amsterdam Avenue, I would often pass, or would always pass if I was on Amsterdam, I would pass this great cathedral, the Cathedral of St. John the Divine, which is what I thought Back then, it was just one of the one of the largest Gothic cathedrals. I looked it up today, and on their website, they're saying they are the largest cathedral in the world. It's an enormous cathedral, um, the heart of New York City, sitting on eleven and a half acres of land. It's a giant, giant building. Um, and I would, from from time to time, walk into the cathedral just to take a tour and, and just get get lost in the, the kind of the, the timeless quality of this of this this church. Um, and then I noticed that they had Vesper service. This is a, a service on Sunday nights where um, it was candlelit and they would, there would be um, a procession of, of singers that would come in and sing Gregorian chant for an hour or so. And uh, being really feeling very alienated, feeling like New York City was just swallowing me whole and, and, and leaving me kind of beside myself. On, on many Sundays, I would go to the, St. John the Divine, I'll go to the Cathedral of St. John the Divine and listen to this, this, this ancient music and be transported into an entirely different dimension. So again, there was this access to the sacred that I associated and, and, and attributed to being in the cathedral at a particular time when this particular series of events, i.e. Gregorian chant, took place. But I didn't stay in college forever and um, 
and I, I should say, actually, one of the things I did also discover when I was in university was I, I discovered yoga. I, um, I started attending yoga classes at the Iyengar Institute in New York. And if I were to summarize it, what I would say is it was the first time I, I came to realize that there was a formula, and this is a word that came up last week, but there was a formula for yoking oneself to the divine. There was a, a, an injunction, meaning a, a series of instructions to follow. That if you did it uh, to a sufficient degree, you were promised a union with the divine, with the sacred, with the transcendent, with some uh, higher dimension of being that was was seemed far more preferable to the machinations of of separate self, kid in college and depressed scenario. But what I found was in doing yoga was that Shavasana bliss didn't last. <laughs> I would sometimes, it would last just enough till I would get back on the, on the, on the subway to go back uptown. And then I would be back in feeling depressed and anxious and, weak and fearful and worried. But I was I was really drawn to uh, and, and enlivened by this potential that yoga seemed to hold, and so I, I, I pursued practicing after college. Um, I went to Asia. I lived in India and Taiwan for three plus years, uh, mostly teaching English and, and primary school in, in both of those places. But I, I did a lot of practice on my own at the time. I did a lot of reading and study of, of spiritual tradition, and um, felt more and more convinced that this is what I wanted to devote my life to. Um, when I came back from Asia uh, and when I was in, in, enrolled in acupuncture school, um, a dear friend invited me to go on retreats, on meditation retreats. And as I was preparing this talk, I realized a retreat can be thought of as a, a great pressure cooker of spiritual transformation. It's not that you won't transform outside of retreat, but there's something about the immersive uh, 24 seven quality of a seven day, nine day retreat that really turns up the heat of this transformation to, 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 uh, give people a more profound and ongoing experience of the transcendent or sacred. And I found that to be true. I, I, I don't know how many retreats I sat, but it was a lot over many years, but particularly in the first four or five years, I was doing two to three or four retreats a year. And every time I, I can say this without, without even, uh, faltering, but every retreat I sat reliably rejoined me or reconnected me with the sacred, with a new profound uh, sense of the human of human potential. And because of its reliability to do that, I became like many of my friends in, in the retreat world, I became kind of a retreat junkie with uh, many, many fantasies of, of monastic escape because I thought the monastics, were the ones that were doing it 24-7. They were the ones that were living it all the time. <clears throat> but over the course of doing this retreat and working with multiple teachers and listening to their talks, and I want to say re-listening to their talks, and some of you have shared with me that you listened to my talks a few times and it um, brings a little bit of a smile to my face because I've listened, I, I, I could listen to one or two talks three to seven to 10 times over one week. I would immerse myself in just one talk and, re and really listen to it till I feel like I got the essence of it. But listening to the, my teacher's talks, I, I, I really started to internalize uh, a deep message in their teaching, which, which was across the board. And, and that message was that Dharma practice, the meditative practice 
wasn't necessarily going to change the conditions of the horizontal self, the little S self. Practice wouldn't necessarily change those conditions. Sure, my wardrobe changed from time to time. My dietary habits would change from time to time. The way I'd speak about practice would change from time to time. But the things it wasn't changing for the horizontal self, it wasn't changing the horizontal self, the horizontal self's encounter with impermanence, suffering, and inconstant change, meaning nonstop change. It wasn't changing those things. But what practice did, and this is what they were teaching, and I started to really appreciate this, and this is the point that I'm trying to drive to here, but practice, what Dharma practice was doing was recontextualizing the whole story of the horizontal self against another axis called the vertical axis. So we have the horizontal axis of ourself um, moving forward into the future, leaving behind the past. So there's this, this time-bound sense of self. But the horizontal axis intersects vertically or perpendicularly to the small self, wherever it is on that horizontal axis. And this horizontal, or sorry, this vertical axis of big S self, capital S self, as they often refer to as in the, in the Advaita Vedanta teaching, this vertical axis was available at any point on the horizontal. And this vertical stands for the sacred, the timeless, the unbound, the awake, real compassion or radical compassion and love and freedom. But I was often, and, and as much as I was motivated and inspired by these teachings, I was a little bit confused about it. <laughs> and uh, whenever I heard talks about the transcendent, like the transcendent element of experience, I tried to make sense of it in the best way I could, and I'm a little embarrassed to say this, but I, I imagined and projected out that the transcendent was some sort of higher plane of existence. It was a higher plane separate from the mundane, a kind of spiritual penthouse of existence, high and above the, the, the mundane garden-level apartments of existence. But what I came to appreciate through many years of practice and study and, 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 and listening to these teachings and putting them into practice, I came to appreciate that the transcendent is present on every surface of the experience. In fact, the transcendent is what is conscious of every experience. In other words, the vertical axis of being, the transcendent, timeless nature of our being, is literally hiding in plain sight. But the danger, and this is what I was trying to tease out last week, if the small sense of self formulates the realization of the transcendent, as happening at some point in the future when you've done enough sufficient practice, which is what many people, and I did this for years until it finally cracked in me that that's not the route. But what can happen is, again, the, the small sense of self says, oh, I have a problem now. I don't have access to the sacred. I have to do something and get good enough at what I'm doing so that at some point in the future, I'll be worthy 
or accomplished enough or skillful enough to realize the transcendent truth. And so as uh, one teacher once phrased it, he says, we, we practice as though we have this palm, tea, palm tree way back at the, end of the, at the back of the mind. We're, we're constantly moving towards that palm tree, hoping that one day we'll be able to rest, arrive at it and rest our back, our weary back against that palm tree. And the problem with that formulation is it delays the realization of the transcendent. It constantly puts it off into the future. So as we say in the Dharma world, the Dharma is to be realized here and now. Now, something else can happen. Not just the small self delaying transcendence into the future, but what can also happen is that when people do get a very authentic and real taste of the timeless, they get a real authentic dunk into the transcendent and they taste the radical freedom that comes in that. They can initially, and I, I, I think I can't coin a new little phrase here, they can initially become um, intoxicated vertical enthusiasts. They become intoxicated with verticalness or they become happy, intoxicated vertical enthusiasts, hive people. And in these early days of experiencing the transcendent, this can lead them to kind of have a disdain or you know, a, a look down upon small self-existence. So the way this gets manifest or the way this, this shows up is people can say, oh, you know, you're, you've got so many concepts. Your concepts are locking you into this, this time-bound world. You have to let free yourself of your concepts. You have to free yourself of your ideas. Uh, or in a more mundane way, you know, one of my friends once I said, hey, can we plan to have a conversation at the end of the week, say at 10 o'clock on Friday? And he says, you're so attached to planning and the concepts of time. We just have to let this thing unfold organically and see when we come to a conversation naturally. Needless to say, the conversation didn't happen at 10 o'clock, 10 a.m. on Friday morning. But with maturity, I mean, as you adapt or acclimate to the recognition of the transcendent as it intersects with the horizontal experience of self across time, uh, we can start to integrate the two. And, and really, I think that's the heart of the spiritual journey, which is an ongoing thing. So sometimes people think, oh, we just experience the transcendent and then we're done and all our problems are going to go away. And that's not the case. But what I would try, try to suggest is that our work, if you want to refer to it like that, our work in the, on the spiritual terrain is to integrate the two truths of both horizontal and vertical being. So we have to honor the truth of our relative self and be, have that, that truth of the relative self ultimately be held by the truth of our transcendent self. Otherwise, all the conditions of the small self on the horizontal plane will, will just produce, as I said, anxiety, depression, fear, and addiction, and all the other nasty pathologies of, of our mind. So on my walk today, as I was reviewing these ideas for this talk, I, I came to the realization myself that my first spiritual koan that I ever came up encountered was not from a Zen teacher, 
and a koan is a is a practice in Zen Buddhism where it's kind of like a spiritual riddle where they might ask you a question or, or have you contemplate a statement that's really non-rational or not not um that doesn't make sense to the conceptual mind to the point that you contemplate enough and you learn how to you you awaken from the the constraints of of rational thinking and my my first koan i realized came from the pop artist david byrne i was vacationing in maine on lake maguntikook outside of camden maine where, where my friend my, my childhood friend had a family cottage and his older brother had a radio in which I started hearing this. And you may find yourself living in a shotgun shack. And you may find yourself in another part of the world. And you may find yourself behind the wheel of a large automobile. And you may find yourself in a beautiful house with a beautiful wife. And you may ask yourself, well, how did I get here? And the chorus answers, letting the days go by, let the water hold me down. Letting the days go by, water flowing underground. Into the blue again, after the money's gone, once in a lifetime, water flowing underground. It was only years later, as I keep trying to suggest, like I, I get exposed to something. It's only much later that I sort of come to a, a clear understanding of what something was about. It was years later when I um, was reading some teachings by Thich Nhat Hanh, where he was pointing to these two truths or these two axes, axes of being, the vertical and the horizontal. And he said, you know, when we have a sense of ourselves being separate and cut off, and fearful and worried. It's like a little wave, a small wave that imagines itself separate. But the truth of the transcendent is water. We're always water. We always have been water. We just imagine ourselves to be a small fragmented wave. And it's the same as it ever was same as it ever was. So our practice, if I were to put this into an instruction, try to do this, we're not practicing to become awake. Our practice is integrating awakeness into our life. So, and I say this because so many people think they have to do something in their spiritual, in their meditative practice to become better at something, to become more awake, more present. And all I want to say is, if you can hear my voice now, the thing that is hearing my voice is awake. That's natural wakefulness right here. You don't control it. You don't direct it. You don't put it on something. It's just the, the receiver of your being that is awake to natural occurrences as they arise. And that's what we're trying to develop here. We're trying to stabilize. And in this sense of presence, this alive presence that we all have, and allow that to recontextualize the, all the experiences of things that are coming and going within it. 
So all the conditions of the horizontal self arise and cease within our conscious awareness. And just that much is, is, is a huge chunk of practice. To, to, to really feel the stability, to feel the stillness, to feel the inclusivity of this quality of, of being, this, this timeless dimension of being. So I'll leave you, I, I, I think I, I made it, or just at two minutes past the half hour. So I was able to deliver a truncated talk <laughs> this week. Um, and if you have questions or points for discussion, I, I, I welcome those afterwards. Now, some of you have said, and I, before we go into the meditation, I just wanna say that some of you said, um, uh, you know, you, while we're meditating, it occurs to you things to think, to, to share afterwards. And I really, I, I, I encourage that to, to not think the meditation has to be separate from what I just said. In many ways, we're having a conversation. All of us are having a conversation with, with, with each other. And particularly, I'm having a conversation with you. So I just made a statement. I just made a statement in the conversation. You're now going to listen and have a conversation with yourself about what you heard. And then we can have a, a real conversation afterwards about anything that is of interest or value to you or, or, or you want to clarify or question or, 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 or explore. So you don't, as I, as I try to teach in meditation, you don't need to stop your thinking. It's just to rest into the presence, the liveness that is connected to that conversation. And it's not, it, it, that doesn't violate the transcendent. That doesn't violate the timeless. It all occurs within that. Okay, I hope you enjoyed today's talk. I got a lot of interesting, stimulating feedback from members of the practice uh, community online, our Sangha. And in particular, one question was, how does this theme of the big S self, uh, how does that theme relate to the concept in Buddhism of there being no self? And as I wrote to wrote back to the person that asked this question, I said, that's a fantastic question. It's a question that has plagued me for at least 10 years, and in the last couple years, I think I've come to an understanding that solves that riddle or squares that riddle, and I will be exploring that um, going forward. So uh, for now, I hope you enjoyed today's talk. If you'd like to practice with us again, check out the Sangha, and otherwise, I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Take care, stay safe, practice on, and I'll see you soon.